look at the first 10 verses of chapter 13, where John tells us about the beast from the sea. John says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over it, to, it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, John witnessed the seventh angel blow the seventh trumpet, and what came forth was the sound of loud voices in heaven that declared the triumph of the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ over the kingdom of this world. Remember that the kingdom of this world is the system of evil that exists under the sway, the authority of Satan himself. It's not one kingdom, not one government, not one state or one empire. It is all governments, all states, all empires, all dominions of this world that have ever existed in opposition to the will and way of God himself. Remember that the revelation is not linear, it is circular. It regularly returns to themes already raised to reveal more detail and greater nuance. This declaration of the triumph of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of this world is an announcement that the day of the Lord has come, a day longed for in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, by the saints who longed for their blood to be avenged, a day described in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17, as marked by natural disasters, heavenly signs, and the outpouring of God's wrath. There are many things that will accompany the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the culmination of human history. And what we would like is for there to be in the Revelation just one clear place where it says, this is the day of the Lord. But that's not how it works. 
Instead, we're returning over and over and over again to all of the things that surround the great and terrible day of the Lord, as Malachi called it. And 11, 15 to 19 reminds us that at the center of the great day of the Lord is the victory of God over the devil and the eternal establishment of God's kingdom, his rule and his reign over the world and the permanent ruin of the kingdom of this world, that system of evil opposition to God's rule inspired by and centered on that great dragon who is the ancient serpent, the devil, even Satan himself. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 17 did not flow chronologically out of chapter 11, you'll remember, as expounding upon that day of the Lord, but instead returned to the theme introduced in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, namely, that of the persecution of the people of God by the unbelieving nations for a measured, short, but intense period of time before the return of Christ. Remember, in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, after John is told to take the measuring rod and measure the temple and the altar he's, and the worshipers, he's then told not to measure the outer court of the temple. It is given over to the nations, John is told. And he's told that the nations, the Gentiles, the unbelieving world, will trample the outer courts, even the holy city, for 42 months, 1,260 days. We talked about there that that's a way of talking about a short but intense period of time, a season in which persecution happens on the people of God. And now that season, that short, intense period of time is recalled as we go into chapter 12. Why is there persecution? Why is there suffering and hardship and turmoil at the end of human history Why is there a war between the world and the people of God? Well, it's because of what happens in chapter 12. John's vision in chapter 12 was of a woman in birth pains, a male child brought to the throne of God, a red dragon who is the ancient serpent, the devil, prevented from destroying the male child and cast out of heaven in a great angelic war, where he was cast to earth and, fo- and focused his destructive energies on the woman's offspring, namely those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus when he could not destroy the woman herself. That vision of chapter 12, as we explained, concerned the exaltation of the sun, the exile of the serpent, and the evacuation of the saints. To put it simply, the incarnation crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ had both an earthly and a heavenly impact. On earth, the Christ event drew a line in the sand between the disciples of Jesus and the rest of the world. In heaven, the Christ event silenced the devil who had previously been accusing God of not being just on account of of the fact that he had not destroyed the sinners of earth. Because Christ dealt with the sins of the world, Satan no longer had grounds to accuse the Father of being unjust and therefore was banished from the presence of God and exiled to earth for a short season. 
the same short season of chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, where the nations, the unbelieving world, trample the holy city, the believing world, (coughs) and where the witnesses of the church prophesy the same short season that we will see in chapter 13 and verse 5, where the beast of the sea, who is also the beast of the abyss and the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness, is allowed to exercise authority. Exiled to earth with waning power, Satan finds that he is unable to destroy the whole people of God, the church. So in this last age between the first coming of the Lord Jesus and the final coming of the Lord Jesus, (coughs) Satan is making war on the individual followers of Jesus, those who keep the commandments of God, namely you and me and all our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and throughout the ages. John's description ended with the dragon, who is Satan, standing on the sand of the sea making war on the woman's offspring, namely the disciples of Jesus. That sets the stage for the appearance of the beasts in chapter 13, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, who are dependent on the power of the dragon and are used to draw the unbelieving world into his worship. We've noted before that Satan seeks to advance an unholy, false trinity that mocks the holy, true trinity of the real God. In this unholy trinity, Satan is the false father, the beast of the sea, who is elsewhere revealed as the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the beast of the abyss, is the unholy, false son. And the false prophet of chapter 16 and verse 13 who is the same as the beast of the earth described here in chapter 13 and verse 11, is the unholy false spirit. As chapter 12 and verse 17 saw the Satan standing on the sand of the sea, chapter 13 verse 1 revealed the reason for his standing there, namely to call forth the other members of his unholy false trinity. John writes, that he saw a beast rising out of the sea. In chapter 11 and verse 7, the witnesses of God were attacked and killed by the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, the abyss. It's the same beast, the one who is Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. That he's there described in chapter 11 as coming from the abyss and here in chapter 13 as coming from the sea is owed to the shifting language of the apocalypse. Robert Mounts writes that the ancient world commonly associated the sea with evil. And for the last great enemy of God's people to rise from the reservoir of chaos would be entirely appropriate. Thus we can understand both the abyss and the sea as representative of the chaotic domain of evil. George Eldon Ladd writes that this vision is directly dependent (coughs) upon the vision recorded in Daniel chapter 7 in which he saw four beasts coming up out of the sea, representing a succession of four worldly empires. The beast of the sea had ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. 
In chapter 17 and verse 12, John is told that the ten horns are ten kings who unite with the beast for a short time, one hour, he's told, giving him their power and authority to make war on the Lamb who will in turn conquer them because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The seven heads of the beast draw us back to the image of the red dragon, which is Satan, in chapter 12 and verse 3. <coughs> there he is described as having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. The parallel language is meant to connect the beast to the dragon. The beast, who is Antichrist and the man of lawlessness, does the bidding of the dragon, who is the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. The beast is dependent upon the dragon for his power. And as a result, those who follow the beast worship the dragon. Mounts notes that in apocalyptic, the number seven carries the idea of completeness. A seven-headed beast would be an appropriate symbol for the ultimate enemy of the believing church. Recall that the beast is an unholy, false version of the sun. The scripture reveal numerous titles for God the Son. <coughs> he is the Son of Man, the Son of the Most High God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Christ. He's the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Blasphemy is speaking profanely about holy things. You may remember from our study of Mark's gospel a few weeks ago, we noted that blasphemy is being slow to speak up for the truth or slow to call down what is false. So for the beast to have blasphemous names on its heads means that it will claim divine prerogatives. It will take for itself titles that belong to God alone. This detail gives us insight as to who the beast may be at the end of days. George Eldon Ladd notes that the most explicit claim to deity was made by Domitian, the emperor of Rome from A.D. 81 to 96. Domitian demanded that he be addressed by the title Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. Roman emperors often believed themselves to be deities, divine if they didn't believe it in their own lifetimes, they were worshipped as such in the aftermath of their earthly lives. While blasphemous antichrist existed in the first century and have existed throughout the time, times and half a time in which we live, near the end of human history, just before the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will appear an individual who will use profound secular authority both political and militaristic, to establish a worldwide following that will lead to his deification as those who dwell on the earth, unbelievers, worship him and Satan who controls and empowers him. John writes that the beast was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's. Here are the four beasts described in Daniel chapter 7, are brought together in the one beast of the sea. Robert Mounts is helpful here in reminding us not to miss the overall impact of the vision in the midst of the details. Uh, 
He writes, the main purpose of the seer, that's John, is to describe a monster great and terrifying who utters blasphemies against God and persecutes the faithful. The beast's power is derived from the dragon. Though the beast will be an individual with broad-reaching secular authority, his power is owed to Satan himself. Here, as the beast gave his power, excuse me, as the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority to the beast, we are reminded that the beast is controlled by and does the bidding of Satan. All earthly powers, dictators, despots, tyrants, kings, potentates, all earthly powers who are unbelieving are given over to Satan and to the work of his glory, whether they recognize it or not. That kind of blinded service of Satan will culminate and reach its pinnacle in the beast, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. John writes of the beast that one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. We won't explore it, but it is worth noting that what is <coughs> translated here as wound, everywhere else in the Revelation is translated as plague. And all of the uses of plague in the Revelation refer to a divine judgment. This one use may stand out from the rest. George Eldon Ladd explains that in the background of this passage is the myth of Nero Redividus. The emperor Nero came to death by his own hand in AD 68, but the story arose that he was not really dead, but had escaped to the east and would return in triumph. Nero killed himself in his own palace, if I remember reading that, but they had a public funeral that lasted for two weeks because they wanted to ensure that people knew he was actually dead. And despite that very public funeral, people continued to purport that Nero was in hiding. He would come back at some point. You can imagine that in their world where there was no broad television access. They couldn't make this known to the masses. My goodness, in our own day, we can't always get through to everyone with all the technology we have. The myth continued to abound that Nero would return. That's in the background, but only somewhat. At issue here is the continued mimicry, the blasphemous imitation of the Christ event. The actual Christ event turns on the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. Because Jesus triumphed over death, he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is worshipped as King of kings and Lord of lords, even as the Father is glorified in unending splendor. The whole of heaven gives praise unto God and to the Lamb who stands as though he has been slain in chapter 5. Satan desires that kind of glory. So he empowers the beast to copy triumph over death in order to increase his following and establish his worship by those who dwell on the earth. Remember, that's John's way of talking about unbelievers. 
But this is more than just a king dying and rising. The heads, we will find out later, are the kings, are real individual rulers. But John's not just talking about an individual king, one ruler dying and rising. Indeed, in chapter 13 and verse 12 and verse 14, we'll learn that the beast himself, and not just one of its heads, is wounded by the sword. The wording here is used to draw us back to chapter 5 and verse 6, where the lamb was standing as though slain. In a blasphemous copy, the beast presents himself as though he had been slain in order to attract the following of the whole earth. If you don't get anything else from this, listen to this next sentence. The difference, of course, is that the lamb died for the whole world while the beast simply wants the whole world to die. That's the difference between truth and a lie. And the whole of this chapter turns on distinguishing between the truth and the lie. That the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast is a way of describing the depth of the deception and the significance of the sway that the beast will have over the world. The word follow here, it's literally the word after or behind. It's the same word Jesus uses in Mark chapter 8 and verse 33 where Jesus looks at Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. What Jesus is saying to Peter in Mark chapter 8 or Matthew chapter 16, the parallel to that passage, is Peter, you have stepped out of your place. You've acted as though I am no longer your Lord, your teacher. Get behind me. The place of the disciple, the place of the learner, the place of the student is behind the master. Jesus is saying to Peter, Follow me. Get behind me. You can only be an error if you do not. The danger is that for the people of earth, seeing this blasphemous imitation of triumph over death by the beast, they will be so blinded, so mesmerized, so taken in by this false demonstration of power that they will follow, get behind, walk after, become devoted to, learners of, taken in by this master, the beast. And as they are, they will find that his power is only to destroy them. Just as the triumph of the Lamb of God over death leads to the worship of God in the Lamb, So the blasphemous triumph over the mortal wound by the beast will lead to the worship of the beast, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and the worship of the dragon, who is the serpent, the devil, Satan. That is made explicitly clear in chapter 13 and verse 4. Remember that on the other side of the Red Sea, in Exodus chapter 15, Moses and the people of Israel worshipped God in song. And in verse 11 of Exodus 15, they ask a question. 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, back to chapter 13 of the Revelation, the whole earth, blinded by the blasphemous acts of the beast and the dragon, will worship the beast and the dragon who empowers him, asking, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? There's a clear comparison here, a parody of what is true and holy and righteous by that which is false and profane and filthy. We need to understand that the worship of Satan and those aligned with him, it doesn't look nearly as differently as we might think from the worship of God. There are parallels all around. Satan does not want us to believe him that different from God Almighty. He does not want his agent to look that different either. This is why he goes to such lengths to be comparable to God, to be a mimic of the triune Lord, to seem to have the same power over death as the Lord Jesus. The world will be fooled by the evil one held under his mesmerizing display. We would too, were it not the fact that Jesus cuts the days short for the sake of his chosen ones, his elect, as he taught in the Olivet Discourse. As the whole earth sings of the beast's unrivaled power, they are declaring that they have no ability to fight him. They've given over completely to his control. They seem sure that those in rebellion will soon do the same. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty, blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We've established that the beast of the sea is equivalent to the beast of the abyss, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, whose name and fame are pronounced through the abomination of desolation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, we're told that the day of the Lord will not come unless the man of lawlessness will commit the abomination of desolation, unless he's first revealed. That dreadful event is when he takes his seat, Paul says, in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul also tells us that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. These events that immediately precede the final coming, the day of the Lord, are equivalent to the description of chapter 13 and verse 5 of the Revelation. That the beast utters prideful, blasphemous words means that he takes the place of God, which is what the abomination of desolations is all about. And that he exercises authority for 42 months is equivalent to the wicked deception of the perishing Paul talks about. There will be a short, limited period of time at the end of human history when the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, the beast, steps forward in the power of Satan to promote himself as God and hold the world under his sway. This person will be forceful and charismatic and would deceive even the people of God were they not sealed by the Spirit and the days cut short. The beast is profane. It blasphemes God, his person, his people. 
It wants the world to see it as the truth and God as the lie. That's the way evil works. It exchanges the truth for the lie. And the problem is that so many of us have listened to the lies for so long that we no longer recognize the truth when it's shouting us down. John then reminds us that the power of the beast and the power of the dragon are not outside of God's control. There is a divine passive in verse, 13, verse 7 of chapter 13. It says there that it was allowed, that is the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Allowed, a divine passive. God is the one in control. God is the one with all authority. God has not allowed there to be power, dominion outside of his control. So in full control, in full power, in full authority, God allows these things to take place. God is permitting the rise of the beast's power He is giving the wicked world over to their loves and passions as they commit themselves to the dragon and to his beast. And as he does, he is allowing his saints to suffer loss as war is made on them and they are conquered. The beast is given power to make war on the church even as he is given power to compel the worship of the peoples of earth whose names have not been found in the Lamb's book of life. God's allowing of this evil system to flourish for a time will bring a real showdown. God is going to give the evil one just enough rope to be hung. He will be allowed to amass an army of worshipers and to compel people to be loyal to him. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, that unholy trinity, will be at the height of their evil power when the day of the Lord comes and God destroys them and their followers once and for all, showing that his is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. It's not the first time that God has allowed such things to happen. If you recall in God's instruction to Abraham, God told Abraham in advance that he would allow Abraham's descendants to sojourn in Egypt for 400 years of oppression while he allowed the sins of the Ammonites to amass, to build up. It was the effort on the part of holy God to prove his own justice, to demonstrate that he would give time for repentance. But when his long arm came to bring about justice, it would be swift and it would be right. It will be that way at the last day. God is allowing his people to suffer, to endure difficulty and hardship and trouble while he allows the enemy, the evil one, and all those bent under his sway to flourish. But when the day of the Lord comes, it'll be swift And it will be right. In chapter 13 and verse 8, there is a question about what has occurred before the foundation of the world. Depending on the version you read, is it the writing of the names in the Lamb's book or is it the slaying of the Lamb? The ESV, which I read from, prefers the former idea 
communicating that the electing of persons was done in eternity past. But the latter reading, that of the slaying of the lamb before the foundation of the world, which you see best preserved in the King James, is actually, I think, the better reading. It's more true to the Greek. Robert Mount says it's the better, in this case, to follow the order of the Greek syntax and read, quote, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That is, the death of Christ, Robert Mounts writes, was a redemptive sacrifice decreed in the councils of eternity. Before the creation or foundation of the world, it was determined that God the Son, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, would die for the redemption of sinners. This was not an alternative plan. It was not an afterthought. It was the long-arranged, preordained will of the Father. The whole story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation flows out of the Father's will to crush the Son. Recall the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. There the prophet writes, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This reading of Revelation 13.8 does not negate the elective will of God. Indeed, in chapter 17 and verse 8, John is told that the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. That's a reminder of the preserving power of God. God calls, God chooses, God elects a people for his own possession and ensures that they come to him rather than going after the beast. This doesn't negate free will. For indeed, throughout the scriptures, election and free will coexist. They're both a part of the story of redemption and both necessary for a personal salvation. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. On this side of the gate of heaven, it reads, Whosoever will may come. And on the other side of the gate of heaven, when we enter into the presence of God Almighty, it says, Chosen before the foundation of the world. We are called and chosen and elected. We would not be God's people if we were not. But we also choose and call upon the name of the Lord and freely believe in faith that we would not be God's people if we did not. The Lamb of God has a book, a recording, a listing of those who belong to him. We think of a book, right? They would have thought of a scroll. Books not common in the first century, almost unheard of. So they're thinking of a scroll, the scroll of life, a, a listing of the recording of those who belong to God. We're first introduced to this book in chapter 3 and verse 5. Well, actually, we're first introduced to it in Philippians 4 and verse 3. And there Paul talks to, uh, talks about the women that, couldn't get along. Now look, it's not just women that can't get along. Sometimes it's men. In that case, it was women who couldn't get along. And Paul said, I entreat you, Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. But remember that Paul said he asked his faithful companion. Who's that 
Who's that person in the church that can bring people together, reconcile others to each other and to God? And Paul said, all of you, you're in the Lamb's book. Your names are recorded by God. But in chapter 3, in verse 5, Jesus talked to the church at Sardis, and he gave a strong warning. He said, you're like a grave. You're whitewashed on the outside, but dead on the inside. Wake up, Jesus says, and strengthen what remains. And Jesus says that the one who does this would not have his name blotted out of the book of life. It occurred to me that we might need to change our language or give more explanation because we don't see a pen blot much anymore, do we? We all have fountain pens, and or we all have, have um, ballpoint pens these days, and our pens don't blot like they used to. But if you've ever had a fountain pen in your hand, you know what it's like to have that ink flow just a little too fast. It comes out too fast, and all of a sudden you've got quite a mess. Uh, when I took up writing with a fountain pen several years ago, I, I got a little blotting paper and kept that near so that I could could make sure that the pen was flowing just like it ought to. Jesus says the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who wakes up and strengthens what remains won't be blotted out. His name will be clearly legible to the Father. We'll see this book referred to again as we noted in chapter 17 and verse 8 and also in chapter 20 verses 12 and 15 where we're told about that scene of the great white throne judgment that occurs after the second resurrection. Remember, blessed are those who have participation in the first resurrection, those who are raised to life eternal. But those who are raised in the second resurrection are raised unto death and condemnation and destruction. We're told there that there were books of the deeds of their lives, deeds which condemned them. Because they stood condemned, there was a search made of the Lamb's book. And when their name wasn't found, they were thrown into the lake of fire. And the final mention of this book is in chapter 21 and verse 27, where John tells us that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will live in the new Jerusalem. The point being made in chapter 13 and verse 8 is that the beast is given authority to compel worship of him by all those who dwell on the earth except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Do not miss this reality. There is no neutral ground. If you have heard me preach anything in the last year, I hope you have heard me say this. No one rides the fence. No one is caught between we are either worshipers of God or we are worshipers of the devil. That is not popular. But it is the truth. And people need to know this. What will happen at the end of days when those whose names are not written in the book of life give their allegiance, their worship to the beast, it will not be a surprise. It, it won't happen out of nowhere. It won't be as though these people of the world who are unbelieving all of a sudden choose to become master worshipers just of the wrong God. They are already worshiping the wrong God. They just don't know it. They bow down to their work 
They give themselves over to their pleasure. They have prided themselves in their financial standing. Or they have bowed down in pagan temples. But the same thing that empowers the beast empowers all those systems of idolatrous worship. It is Satan himself. At the end of days when the beast comes, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, when he sets himself up in the temple and says, I am God, the world will give itself over to him and it will come as no surprise. Lest we think it will be hard for people to give themselves over, need I only remind us of the near idolatrous way that some of our fellow citizens give themselves to their, pol- their political leaders. There are people who speak of candidates and officials in government as though they are divine. And God help us, I haven't seen anyone leading that is near divine. (laughs) These are the reasons that this revelation must be taken with a warning, John says. In verse 10, he says, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. I could tell you a lot about this verse. The one thing I want you to know is it's a difficult verse to understand. Some people have seen in this verse a Call to arms, get your sword, go fighting. But surely that's not what God's calling us to. After all, Jesus, in the moments of his passion, told us that the one who lives by the sword dies by the sword. After all, the Apostle Paul told us that we ought to seek to lead quiet, respectful, respectful, decent lives. What's John getting at? There's a reference here to Jeremiah 15 in verse 2. Grant Osborne says that that reference notes quite a different context than what we see in the Revelation. In Jeremiah, the punishments of the nation are for their sin and apostasy, while here in the Revelation they're due to attacks by the beast and his followers. There in Jeremiah the cause is unfaithfulness. Here it is faithfulness to Christ. Thus, judgment oracle of Jeremiah has been transformed into a prophetic call to the people of God to join Jesus, as Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 10, in the fellowship of suffering and to be willing to follow his model set out in 1 Peter 2 and 23 that when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Captivity and death have always been the lot of believers, Osborne says. And in the final days, under the influence of the Antichrist, this will become a universal experience of the church. The only action allowed believers in the book is faithful witness 
and perseverance in following Christ. They must not submit, just submit to the beast, but even more to divine providence. And then he says, as, the old, as in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh, the Lord, who wins the wars on behalf of his people. And the message is clear. Do not make war on the beast. That's the work of God. Live faithfully and persevere in witness. Leave the battle to the Lord. It's interesting to note that here in verse 10, the very last line, the Greek literally reads, here is the endurance and faith of the saints. The ESV builds out that verb. It has to. The verb has to be supplied there. And so it builds it out as here is a call to, the, to endure, to be faithful. But literally, it's not a call. It's, it's that faithfulness, endurance are God's plan. This idea that we should allow ourselves to go down to destruction, allow ourselves to be taken by the sword, allow our lives to be slain on account of the word of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus, that is literally endurance. That is literally faith. When I think about faith, or endurance, I think about what I can do. Don't you? When you think about endurance, don't you think about something I must do for God? If I could just give enough, if I could just do enough, if I could just go enough, that would be the way I would survive, persevere, endure. But God seems to be saying here in verse 10, actually, endurance, faith, It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. And who you are, you're the followers of the Lamb. And you're the followers of the Lamb when you first confess Him as Savior. And you're the followers of the Lamb when you trust Him in all the troubles of life. And you are the followers of the Lamb when you go down to your death declaring that Jesus is Lord. God is calling us to recognize, brothers and sisters, that there really is truth and everything else is a lie and that the world will be taken in by the lie completely unaware. And so it is our call today to be clear about the truth, to say to one another and to the watching world, There is only one king. There is only one Lord. There is only one God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And only he deserves our worship. Father, we pray that as we think about these things in days to come, they would have meaning and merit in our pattern of discipleship. That even, Lord, as we discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, we would remember that real endurance, true faith, are not just about what we do. They're about who we are in Christ. We are your people, sealed by your Spirit, 
washed by your son's sacrifice. His blood poured out for us. Pray, Lord, that as we come to Holy Week, as we recall the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, we would know that He genuinely died for the world and that all the evil one wants is for the world to die. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.